as you read through the Gospels, I don't care if it's Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, if you read through the Gospels, it's hard to miss the supreme strength and power that Jesus possesses in the face of insurmountable odds. It seems like everything in the Gospels is, is one challenge after the other, whether it's a, a sick person, a, demonly, a demonically possessed person like in our text this evening, even a, a dead person. These, seems like, these seem like insurmountable odds, and over and over and over again, Jesus shows his supreme strength in the face of insurmountable Odds, for instance, in the section right before the one we just read, Mark recounts an incredible display of God's sovereign and unflinching authority in the face of a hurricane. If you're familiar with the Bible, you've been around the church, you know this story when Jesus was asleep on the boat in the middle of a megastorm, a megastorm. We would, we would characterize it as a, as a hurricane. And Jesus is famously asleep on the boat, and we're, we're told, and then, and, and then he, he's woken up by his disciples, we're told. And Jesus, without breaking a sweat, he rebukes the hurricane. He talks to the elements. And what's remarkable is the elements respond. They listen to his word, and the waves stop, and the winds cease. And we're told at the end of that story that the disciples were now more afraid at the sudden calm of the storm than they were in the midst of the storm. In fact, if you're there in Mark 5, just take a glance at Mark 4, verse 41, and, and look at their response to now the calm in the storm. Verse 41 of Mark 4. It says, and they were filled after he calmed the storm with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. This is a question that, that everyone is, must be faced with in their life. Who is Jesus? Who then is this? Who is the Jesus of the Gospels? Who is this man behind the miracles, behind the voice that calms the sea? Who then is this? Mark, along with the other gospel writers, are not presenting, listen, are not presenting a Jesus who has the ability to call upon God for supernatural strength and power. That's not the aim of the New Testament gospels. Instead, Mark is showing us that Jesus himself is the supernatural power. Jesus is not calling on a higher authority when he's in the boat. He's acting on his very own authority. Jesus doesn't call on anyone or anything. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't conjure. He doesn't chant. He doesn't light a candle. Instead, he speaks and stuff happens. And the question is, do you, do you believe that? Who, who is this? And this is who we are dealing with in the gospel narratives, and, and this is who we're dealing with in our text this evening, this same Jesus. 
In our text this evening, we move from a hopelessly violent storm caused by the sea to now an equally violent storm raging inside of a human being. Before us in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, a richly textured section indeed is the most, the most explicit and elaborate display of an exorcism in the entire Bible. Both Matthew and Mark, rather Matthew and Luke, both recall the story of the demoniac who lived in the Gerasenes who was approached by Jesus and was healed. Both Matthew and Luke recall the story, but Mark includes the most details out of all of the gospel writers. It's remarkable the amount of nuanced details in this account. There are so many details. We're not going to hit all of them this evening, but we're going to hit some. But all of the details that we see in Mark chapter 5 all serve to increase both the veracity and the power of this real story. And by the way, cards on the table, I believe this really happened. I believe there was really a a, a demoniac that was possessed by a legion of demons and Jesus really did free him from his bondage. And it's full of details that that are rich, not only not only for our, our minds, not only for them being interesting, but they're rich for us and for our own application. And so the first detail in this text comes in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. It says, they, they came to the other side of the sea. This is after the major hurricane that Jesus just hushed with his voice. It says, they came to the other side of the sea. That's Jesus and his disciples to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, why is that detail important, that this is the country of the Gerasenes? This is primarily important because the area that Christ has led them, the disciples to, is the country of the Gerasenes. And this countryside outside of Galilee is is a region that is predominantly Gentile. It means there's not a lot of Jews there. These are, this, is, this land, this country is full of outsiders, non-Jews, Gentiles. And so listen, these guys are coming off of the boat ride of their lives, right? The boat ride of their lives. They are still probably got the goosebumps. They're probably still processing what just happened when Jesus spoke and waves listened. And it would be nice, I don't know if, you, if, if, if you're alone or if I'm alone in this, but it would be nice if you could process what just happened on the sea in some maybe a more familiar place, like home. <laughs> hey, I want to go home after a storm like that, to process that. Or at least I want to go to a familiar territory, but instead Jesus leads them to an unfamiliar Gentile territory. But not only is this area unfamiliar to a group of good Jewish boys, but this particular area is totally unsettling. This particular area is totally unsettling because in this area, they were not only surrounded by Gentiles, but also in this story, we have pigs. And pigs for good Jewish boys are totally unclean. So not only do you have an area that is full of 
non-Jews, Gentiles, but you've got an area that's full of pigs. 2,000 of them, Mark records. But not only is, is this area full of pigs, we also have tombs that are full of dead people. Also unclean, not cool. Also, in, on top of that, we have this demon-possessed man who is out of his mind, completely overtaken by a legion of demons. For a good Jew, there is no good reason to be at a place like this. And yet Jesus seems to think it's exactly where they need to be after a boat ride like that. And so with that as the backdrop and the context into our story, this is where our story begins. Look at verses 2 through 5 now and track with me. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, that's Mark's favorite word in his gospel, immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The description of what is happening to this man is nothing short of terrifying. He lives in a graveyard, presumably because that's the only place that would have him. Because there's no living people there to kick him out. That's the only place where he feels welcomed among the dead. Authorities, we hear, have tried to incarcerate him, but to no avail. No one could subdue him, and every day and every night he screams out, literally he howls out in terror while cutting himself with sharp stones. No doubt he's cutting himself to rid himself of his torment and end his life. And if you and I are being honest, at least I'll speak for me, I don't know you guys that well, I think my church would, would be here too. We are not seeking this guy out in mission. Like this is not the short-term mission trip that you and I are signing up for, right? This is not where we're going to send the junior hires on their little five-day mission trip. Guess what, little boys and girls, we're going to the, we're going to the Gerasenes. We're going to go see those guys, and there's a demoniac there with 6,000 demons in him. This is not the short-term mission trip that you and I are signing up for. This is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. This is a bad dream. The demons, the demons have tweaked this man so dramatically that the words used to describe his condition here in Mark would be more appropriate for a crazed animal, not a human being made in the image and likeness of God. God. 
In other words, the demons have distorted God's image in this man so profoundly that you would find it hard to identify him as a person. This is a dramatic, listen, this is a dramatic but accurate illustration of what sin and evil desires to do with all of mankind. It's more explicit in this man because it's more evident in his appearance and in his actions. But make no mistake about it, the effects of sin and evil desire to have on everyone this kind of reaction where men and women created in the image and likeness of God are marred beyond recognition. Which leads me to just a brief parenthesis from the story. A brief parenthesis. We don't see this every day. We don't see this kind of demonic oppression, possession every day. But let let me give a brief parenthesis in this note. It would be naive of us, I believe, naive of us to think that evil manifests itself primarily in this way in our culture. It'd be naive to think that evil primarily manifests itself in this way. This is an accurate picture of, what, of what's behind the curtain of satanic activity. But this is rarely what is seen on the surface. This is an accurate picture, and it's brought to the surface in this man. It does still happen today, but it's more rare. Here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 through 15. We should have the text on the screen, and we do. You guys are awesome. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. This is what Paul says about demonic activity. He says, and no wonder, listen, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. So it is no surprise, verse 15, if his servants, that is demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So the demoniac in our story is manifesting externally the turmoil that's happening in his soul. And that can and does happen. But Paul reveals to us that Satan and demons love, they prefer to disguise themselves in religious morality. Did you catch that? In verse 11, rather in in verse 14 of chapter 11. They love to disguise themselves in religious morality. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Demons do. Why? Because, listen, moralism, moralism will send you to hell just as fast as the unrepentant serial killer. Moralism. Moralism, which places its salvation in one's ability to be morally upright. Moralism is just as repugnant to God as the most heinous of sins. Why? Because moralism says, I don't need God in order to be accounted righteous. 
And so the, the ministers of Satan, demons, love to disguise themselves as messengers of righteousness, sons of righteousness. And it happens all throughout the church today. Of course, Satan and demons find the majority of their possessive influence in religious ideologies. Religious ideologies that promise glory without the cross. In other words, they promise favor with God, eternal life without the cross of Christ atoning for your sin. That's what moralism is. And it's got a dangerous chokehold on the church today. I just got to do more. I just got to try harder. These demonic whispers of moralism are absolutely present in the evangelical church today. Do more. Just, just try a little harder. So let's not think for a moment that because in most cases heads aren't spinning and, and, and green spew is not coming out of most mouths, let's not think for a moment that Satan is, is, is not influencing someone or influencing culture. He's doing so through his messengers of righteousness, messengers of moralism, glory without the cross. Close parentheses back to our story. In our story, however, we do have external torment. And this is, this is no joke. We do have external torment on full display for all to see. And no doubt, everyone that has seen this man, and no doubt the disciples that have just come off the boat, are totally disturbed by what's going on. But then something happens. Something happens. Look at verses 6 through 8. And when he saw Jesus, this is the demoniac, when he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now the irony all throughout Mark's gospel is that the only ones, the only ones that actually understand who Jesus is throughout the entire narrative of Mark's gospel, the only ones that get it, that get the true identity of Christ are the demons. It's the demons alone that understand who Christ is. He says, I adjure you by God. And he calls him son of the most high God. He gives, them a t- gives Christ a title that is supreme above all titles. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him. And he begs him. When he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Literally in the Greek, it is swear to God. Swear to God that you won't torment me. And then Jesus responds. Look at verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? 
And he replied, my name is Legion, for we, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, I don't know about you, but if this is a movie that I'm watching, and dude says, my name is Legion, for we are many, I think Christian conviction comes in. We've got to turn that thing off, right? Right? The effects of this man's possession are scary enough. He's cutting himself. He's breaking change. No one can subdue him. But then to find out that he's actually inhabited by many demons, a legion, a Roman legion. A Roman legion, for your information, is is an army of about 6,000 foot soldiers and a few hundred on horseback. So potentially, this man is possessed by 6,000 demons. Try to imagine Peter's face at this revelation. Try to imagine the sons of thunder gazing at this man who just said, my name is Legion. They must have been out of their minds terrified. But Jesus, but Jesus remains totally in control as the demons beg him not to send them out of the country. But then it gets a little bit more weird and a little bit more scary. Maybe not so much scary, a little bit mostly weird. Look at verses 11 through 13. Look at verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demons, begged him. They begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And then, verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, what on earth is going on here? This went from scary movies should turn it off to weird pigs being possessed by demons running into the sea. What is going on here? The demons ask. They ask to be cast into the herd of pigs, and Jesus sounds like he's negotiating with demons. Like, okay, that sounds, that sounds like a good idea. Really? And so he does it. He does it. But then, to everyone's surprise, probably to the demon's surprise also, the pigs all of a sudden are freaked out. They're freaked out and they stampede down a bank into the sea and die. All 2,000 of them die. Now, when you read this, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm asking a ton of questions, right? I'm thinking... I can't believe that happened. That's not really a question, but you're at least in shock. But then you're asking, why pigs? Why why 2,000 of them? Why did they all commit suicide? I didn't know that pigs could commit suicide. I didn't know that pigs could be demonically possessed. You got a lot of answers 
Jesus to answer for. You've got a lot to answer for in this section. That was, by the way, someone's livelihood, right? 2,000 pigs are not just hanging out. This is, this is somebody's possession. This is their livelihood. This is how they make a living. This is how they feed their family. Those pigs would have provided food and income for the region for years. So Jesus, you got a lot to answer for. But what does Jesus say about the pigs? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't make a, one comment about the pigs. He doesn't seem to care that 2,000 pigs are now floating in the Sea of Galilee. It just happened, and he's cool with it. This in L.A. especially, would not go over well with PETA, right? If this happened in our day, they saw this crazy man, and Jesus, the Messiah, comes along and casts out those demons and puts them in a herd of pigs, and the pigs all commit suicide. Jesus would be sanctioned and ticketed for sure. He would not get away with this today. But what is going on here? What is going on here? James Edwards, a New Testament scholar, comments on this section, and I think he hits it right on the head. This is what he says. Quote, listen. The good done to the demoniac results in great misfortune for the swineherds. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty clear. Ironically, listen, ironically, both Jesus and Mark pass over the obvious plight of the swineherds without comment. And as it stands, the story directs undivided attention to the rescue of one man from a tragic and torturous fate. Here, perhaps, is the essential moral of the miracle, surpassing even the dilemma of the loss of pigs in the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. In other words, for Jesus, for Jesus, 2,000 pigs was a small price to pay for this man's freedom. A small price to pay. So small that Jesus doesn't feel it necessary to make a comment on the pigs. Now, whenever Jesus is finished teaching or performing a miracle, reaction among the people always breaks out. Jesus does a mighty sign, a miracle, and then the people respond. The people React, and this story is no different. Look at the two reactions to this miracle as we close. Look at verses 14 through 17 in the first reaction. The herdsmen, these, these are the people that were in charge of taking care of those 2,000 pigs. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. They, they become evangelists for what just happened, not in the good way, but in the bad way. And people came to see what had happened. Why are there 2,000 pigs floating in the sea? 
Verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. Luke adds, at the feet of Jesus in his account, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Luke also adds, when this, when this man was still demonically possessed, he was completely naked. And now Jesus says, or Luke adds, that he's at the feet of Jesus. Mark adds that he's clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Don't miss that. Don't miss verse 17. And they, the townspeople, the herdsmen, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. So then the first reaction to Jesus calming the storm in this man's life is almost identical to the reaction of Jesus calming the storm in the sea. They're now more afraid at the calm peace in the formerly demonically possessed man. They're more frightened at the calm of this man than they were when he was out of his mind and cutting himself. So distraught are they now at his peace and calmness that they want Jesus out of the region. The only difference in this account is that the townspeople get together now and they decide it's best that Jesus leave. The cost of Jesus being in their country is too great. Verses 16 and 17 again, and those who had seen it described it to them and what had happened to the demonly possessed man and to the pigs. The cost, listen, the cost of this man's freedom was too great for the Gerasenes. Let's get Jesus out of here before we lose the rest of our capital. Let's get Jesus out of here before we lose the rest of our net worth. The cost of this man's freedom for the Gerasenes was too high, and they wanted him gone. That's the first response to this miracle. The second response to the miracle, as you can imagine, is much much different. And of course, this is on the part of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. Look at verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, so Jesus acquiesced to their request. You want me out? I'm not going to force myself. I'm leaving. So Jesus is getting into the boat. As he was doing that, the man who had been possessed, past tense now, with demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he, verse 19, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. How long? How long had it been since this man got to have a conversation with his friends, with his family, we don't know this, it'd be speculation, but maybe he had a wife and children. We know he had friends because Jesus says, don't come with me, I want you to go home. 
And I want you to tell your friends. I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. In verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim Caruso in the Greek. He began to preach in the Decapolis, which is the surrounded, 10 surrounding cities. He went to the Gerasenes and beyond. This guy got busy. <laughs> he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. A heart that knows mercy, a heart that has experienced this kind of grace, cannot stay silent. So this man, he goes, he goes to the Decapolis and he begins to preach. He begins to herald the good news of the gospel. Notice that Jesus doesn't fight them with their request to leave the region. He does, but what they didn't anticipate was how effective the witness of a changed life can be, amen? They underestimated how effective the witness of a changed life could be. A heart that really knows mercy sets aside all other dignities to talk about what it was that has caused their freedom. Ironically, this man, who was once feared by everyone, now has become the first evangelist sent to the Gentiles. In all of the Bible, this is the first evangelist sent to non-Jews, a formerly demon-possessed man. And after being so radically transformed by Jesus, this man can't help but want to be with Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 17? He wanted to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet, to go where he goes. He wanted to be with Jesus. Notice that no one had to teach this man 10 steps to becoming a faithful disciple of Jesus. Right? Hey man, here's 10 steps on how to be with Jesus and follow Jesus. No, he was approached by Jesus and that's all he needed. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to go where he went. His radical deliverance, deliverance produced a radical devotion which looks simply like a desire to be with Jesus. The reaction of the city was fear and unbelief. But the reaction of the man who was delivered was worship. Now, with that said, and this is where we close. With that said, this story is not ultimately about the devotion of a formerly demon-possessed man to Jesus. This story is not ultimately about devotion. Of, of, of a formerly demon-possessed man, now a clean in his right mind and now heralding the gospel. This story is not about his devotion to God. No, this story is ultimately about Christ's devotion to him. Notice in verse 19 that Jesus doesn't say to the man, 
Jesus doesn't say to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how devoted you are to me and tell them how much you do for me and show them how morally upright you are for me. Verse 19 doesn't say that. No, what does Jesus commission this man to say? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Tell them, tell your family how incredibly loved you are. Tell them, tell them how special you are to me. Tell them how my commitment to you is insurmountable. Tell them how I was willing to cross the sea in a raging storm to get to you one man. Tell them how incredibly loved you are. Tell them how God has had mercy on you. Christian, this this story in Mark exists to remind you of all that God in Christ has done for you. This is a real life event. This really happened. And it's being recalled in this gospel and in this time to remind you of God's commitment to you. God's devotion to you. Because you are more like, you are more like the demon-possessed man than unlike him. You are more like the demon-possessed man than unlike him. Apart from the mercy of God, you are morally bankrupt, totally dead, naked, irrational, and bent on your own destruction. You're more like this man than unlike him. But we hear this story oftentimes, we hear these stories throughout the gospel, oftentimes we disassociate ourselves from those who are receiving rescue from Christ. And that is not the point of the gospel. The the point of the gospel is not to mimic the behavior of, of, of men and women who are deeply devoted to Christ. That's important and it has its role, but the point of the gospel is to be rescued by a God like this who crosses the sea for you. God God in Christ has, has, has left his glorious abode and has condescended, has crossed over a chasm to you, to your heart, and is confronting you with the same kind of mercy this guy received. And the questions you have to answer and the questions we have to answer is who is this and do I believe it? See, Jesus, Jesus himself, Jesus let evil attack himself in such a way that you would be hard-pressed to recognize him as a human being. He allowed himself to be cut and marred to allow nails to be driven through his body. He was called crazy. He was shouted at. He was spit upon. He was thrown out of the city to dwell in the tombs for you. The the question this evening is, is, do you believe that? And, And if you do, then it changes everything. 
you, you don't have to think about, oh, man, what's my devotion to God? What's, 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 my, what's the 10 steps? What's, what's my, my, church, my disciplinary track that I need to be on? Oh, I missed my devotions again today. No, no, no. To be encountered by this Christ over and over and over again, the natural response is I want to be with him. I want to be with Jesus. That's why you do church. That's why you gather. That's why you're preaching from this pulpit to be reminded of what you already know to be true. That God is good. He's merciful. He's kind. And his love towards us is incredible. John Calvin, at his best, and this is where we for sure close. I know preachers tend to circle the runway a few times, but this is for sure the landing. Calvin, at his best. He says, for he, this is Jesus, was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, Darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force force backed, combat combated, war warred against, Vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation is damned, the abyss has sunk into the abyss, hell is now transfixed, death is dead, amen. You're going to celebrate that in about four weeks, amen. Death is dead because of the resurrection of Christ. Morality made immortal. In short, mercy, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. If you're a Christian, this is your story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.